Well, it's so great to be able to sing a new song, an old song, a psalm, uh, and, and as the psalms call us to, just to, to extend praise to our good and gracious God, which we have genuinely seen through the book of Genesis, and we come to our last section. Uh, in some ways, I feel sad uh, about finishing Genesis. I, I, I have said before, one day we will finish a book and start it the very next week. One day we'll just preach through and go back to the start, just to show that God's Word is living and active, and you are never going to exhaust a single uh, page of the Scriptures. So let me read Genesis 50, 15 to 26, and then we'll unpack this section while looking back over some of the major themes of Genesis. Genesis 50, picking up at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that he did to him, uh, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus, be comforted. Thus he comforted them, them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made, his, made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in, the coffin, in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Holy Father, we tremble at your word, and may the nations tremble at your word. The nations we have seen formed in Genesis, the nations we have seen destroyed in Genesis. Lord, all is in your hands, all is under your control. Despite sin reigning, you reign above it. Despite death reigning, even you reign above death. You preserved Enoch's life 
And you preserved, of course, the greater Saviour, Christ. The Holy One did not see corruption. And Lord, as we come to think about the themes of Genesis, your sovereign will, your sovereign control, as we think about your people who will have your land and who will live with you forever because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great offspring who was wounded yet conquered the grave. And in conquering the grave, he trampled on the serpent's head. So Lord, may we live in your grace. May we never forget your grace. May we recall it and may we counsel our mind when the lies start to plague us. May we be governed by your promises and not by our flesh. And may your name be exalted in our lives and in this church forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, coming to the very last part of Genesis, it may surprise you how this book finishes. In fact, if you look through the Bible as a whole and read the ends of each of the books, you might be surprised how many of the books finish. It's not what you would expect for the end of a book on its own. And if you were to read it isolated, you may be left wondering what, what's the end of the story? It's almost abrupt. It's unfinished. It's it feels incomplete. And I think as we know as Christians that it is incomplete. Genesis is not the whole story, nor is Exodus, nor are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We need these whole 66 books of the Bible that God has chosen in order to understand God's story and our place in God's story. So as we come to the end and we think about this last section of Genesis we need to remember the themes that Genesis started with. First of all, God. God on His own. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who was there in the beginning and nothing else was. And from nothing, God created a world for Himself. And at the center of His creation, He made a people to image Him. So if one of the themes is just God and his self-sufficiency, the second theme is his people and their dependence upon God. The third is land. God's people in God's land. The garden. And these are the themes that follow throughout the whole of Genesis, yet there are some added in Genesis 3. Sin. Sin is the extra that is added in Genesis 3. And the ne next one is promise or promises. So God, his people, the land is what we are aiming for again. The new Eden. But sin and promises are there weaved throughout the rest of the scriptures. And if we think about sin, we don't only just see that sin is there, but we see that sin affects every aspect of the human life. From Cain to Lamech, to the time of the flood, to Babel, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to God's chosen people. His chosen people who he calls righteous, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah and Jacob, all had sin within them. We can think about their lives. Abraham lying about who Sarah was. Sarah uh, throwing off Hagar into the, the wilderness. Isaac and Rebekah cho showing favoritism to their sons. Jacob and his four wives. We can go on and on. 
But every person, every race, every family, every friend and every nation is corrupted by sin according to the book of Genesis. As Cain was warned, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is to master you, you must rule over it. But with sin comes promises. And our very first promise is right after sin, which is Genesis 3.15. Of course, this is a major theme of Genesis. The victor, the offspring who will bruise the serpent's head. To recall it, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what follows is that every genealogy that comes after Genesis 3 is pointing and waiting with great expectation of an offspring of Eve who will crush the serpent's head, putting away sin and Satan and death. The promise is a new Eden. God, his people in his land under his rule. The promise is a saviour that will draw us back to being in Eden again. And we look at the generations from Seth to Noah, Noah to Abraham. This promise of an offspring is felt but then passes on. And finally we land at Isaac, the long-awaited son Isaac. Is he the saviour? Well, he walks up a mountain carrying the tools for his sacrifice on his back. The knife is coming down upon his body as he is laid bare before his father. And yet God pulls Abraham up to say, yet he is not worthy. But as Abraham pulls away the knife, he says to his son, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And the promise is that the Lord will provide this saviour, a better saviour than Isaac. So sin reigns throughout Genesis, but the promise continues as sin reigns as well. We look at Genesis 15 and the promise given to Abraham, 15:18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. He reminds Isaac of the same covenant in Genesis 26, 2-4. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, to your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed and to Jacob in Genesis 28 13 to 14 those sin reigns the promise reigns greater and behold the Lord stood above and said I am the Lord the God of Abraham your father the God of Isaac the land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise reigns greater than sin. 
the promise of this offspring that will reign in on the earth and take God's people to possess the land. We know that Paul in Galatians says, notice, he does not say offsprings, he says offspring. And in every covenant I read just then, he said offspring. And the offspring is Jesus, and it's through Jesus that all the nations on the earth will be blessed, and it's through Jesus that the promises will be fulfilled. It's through Jesus that He will have the land, and His kingdom will extend, and His people be as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. So in Genesis we see God, His people, in His land, though sin reign, the promise reigns greater. And this is how Genesis ends, with these themes. In verse 15, it says, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. It shouldn't surprise us that the last chapter of Genesis has both death and sin in it. Although Jacob was God's chosen man, he still died because he was still a sinner. His sons were born in his likeness, like Seth was born in the likeness of Adam. And sin ran through their veins. Sin is seen in every aspect of the human life in Genesis. Marriage was the first where we saw sin corrupt. And in every relationship since, we follow the stories of kings lusting for power in Genesis 14, Father and son, there was sin between Esau and Isaac. Mother and son, Jacob and Rebekah. Siblings, Esau and Jacob. And we could continue on throughout the whole book of Genesis. And I'm pretty sure that every thought or aspect of the human life would be in disarray because of sin. And it leaves us knowing that God is the only antidote to the poison of sin. So the sons of Jacob, Jacob show this off once more in the last chapter. We see the sad reality of sin, the fear of man, and the inability to understand grace. The fear of man and the inability to understand grace. Who knows how this unfolded? They're on the long journey back from Jacob's tomb in Canaan, heading towards Egypt, and maybe the brothers started talking. Maybe it was just one of the brothers who started the question about safety with Joseph now that their father had died. But sin caused all of them to question. Somehow they've rallied together, the 11 brothers, and started to share their feelings and their guilt has gotten the better of them about an event that happened some 34 years before. 34 years before this happened. And they're talking about it still. In verse 15 is where this all should have stopped. It should have stopped with the idea in their head. When one of the brothers came to the others and said, remember, uh, remember what happened when we sold Joseph into slavery 34 years ago? And the other brother should have said, brother, remember 17 years ago when Joseph forgave us and we wept and we talked? But it didn't. There was no correction. But sin took a hold of their thoughts and it consumed them to the point of fear. 
This is where we come to good applied theology or practical theology. It's wonderful to be able to quote theology. Wonderful to be able to quote scripture. But does it reign in our life? Does it go from our head to our heart and out our hands? Is theology on our fingertips? Because it's one thing to say I'm saved by the grace of God. It's another to act out of the grace of God. And the brothers here were not acting as though they had been forgiven. We're not acting as though they had been covered by grace. They're recalling things from the past. There is a great need to govern our thoughts, feelings and emotions and take them captive to the Word of God. What we've seen throughout the recent church history, maybe the last 150 years, is that the church moved away from liturgy, that is spoken word of Scripture and and reciting creeds and reciting songs to govern our thoughts and feelings to a more feeling-based driven experience of God. But God, although makes us feel good things, He wants us to test and govern our thoughts, feelings and emotions with His Word and counsel them, and tell them what to believe. Our thoughts and feelings are corrupt. They're covered by sin, as Genesis is absolutely exposed, that every part of us is sinful. Therefore, what we need to do is speak truth to what we are experiencing, including a good feeling. Say we go to a Christian rally, and the music is really wonderful, and the smoke machines are coming in, and the lights are, are, are lighting us up, and we're feeling something. We should counsel that feeling, because it's probably not the Holy Spirit. It's just a move of emotions. It's just psychological relaxation. But when we're sitting there with the Word of God each morning, laboring in prayer reading the scriptures, the truth of the word, constantly fueling our mind, constantly counseling our feelings and emotions, that is when we start to see our feelings change towards a Holy Spirit experience. What did the brothers need here? The brothers needed to recall that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to cleanse us, and to cleanse us from all sin. What we see is that coming back around and repenting over and over again for the same sin that we've repented of before is not a mark of holiness, but rather a lack of understanding of of the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. Repentance is a once-off for each sin. We come to Christ and we repent for the first time and we put our trust in Him And then every day since, as sin comes into our life through the process of sanctification, we come before God and we repent of it, knowing that God's grace covers it fully and sufficiently. We need no more to continue to come back for that same sin. Tomorrow you will have a new sin, or maybe in the afternoon you will have a new sin to repent of. But Christ's work is sufficient and His his death covers a multitude of sin and casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. So coming and repenting for the same sins over and over again is not a mark of your holiness, but rather a misunderstanding of the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And that's what the brothers have done. They haven't seen that Joseph has said, I've forgiven you. 
and they come to him with more sin because they're they're not governing their thoughts they start to make up a story about something Jacob said in verse 16 your father gave us this command before he died say to Joseph please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because we did evil to you and now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father this didn't happen this was made up the brothers have now come in fear of man in fear of Joseph and they come with a lie to say forgive us because our father told you told us to tell you we know the interactions Jacob had with Joseph there was a lot told and there was nothing about forgiving his brothers why because he had already forgiven them that took place 17 years ago we were in awe of the experience but the brothers here question the integrity of Joseph and continue in a new sin in their lying and their mistrust in the grace of God I think Joseph's response says it all Joseph wept when they spoke to him His brothers came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but Joseph said to them do not fear for am I in the place of God Joseph's actions say it all he weeps he weeps because they don't believe because they're bringing up the past something that happened so long ago he weeps because their thoughts had not been counseled by the truth He weeps because they're actually putting him in a higher place than he can be in. They're putting him in the place of God. And he says, "Don't fear me. I'm not God. I'm not in the place of God." The practical theology here that we need to put into action in our own life is that if we've received grace, we will also give grace. We will also give grace. I remember someone saying a pastor said once, You don't believe grace until you have had to give it. You don't believe in the grace of God until you have had to give it. What this means is you don't understand the extent of grace until you've sat back as a Christian, looked at the amount that Christ has forgiven you for and asked, has this person done worse to me than I have done to God? When you have someone coming towards you and repenting, asking for forgiveness, That is what you need to weigh up. Have you has this person done worse to you than you have done to God? And the answer is of course no. You've sinned against God far more than anyone has ever sinned against you. Therefore the only response is to say what Joseph said, do not fear me, for I am not in the place of God. Don't elevate me to a place that can forgive you don't elevate me to a place that I can't stand that I can't stand in God offers forgiveness is what Joseph Joseph is really saying if God offers forgiveness Joseph says therefore I can't withhold if God offers forgiveness you can't withhold forgiveness to someone else I remember going back to the passage where I preached on the reconciliation of the brothers and remember saying that if we confront sin, apply grace, then the relationship that we have with that person is therefore deeper than it was before. 
Sadly, that is not the case in the Christian experience. Sadly, church splits are more common than reconciliation. Yet when we look at the gospel, the gospel message, we go from enemies of God to adopted children of God. And we've sinned against God more than you, anyone sinned against you before. So therefore, any relationship that you have where there is repentance, you apply grace to it because God has applied grace to you and your relationship should start to increase to be deeper than it was before. Look at the brothers with Joseph. They hated him. They were envious of him. They sold him into slavery. And then in their reconciliation, they wept and talked. And for 17 years had peace until they forget the forgiveness and grace that was shown and recall it. But Joseph continues with some more practical theology. And it's the sum of Genesis and the tension between God's sovereign purpose and man's responsibility. I think if I was to do a survey of my sermons, it would be the most quoted verse I've used in the book of Genesis. In verse 20, Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they were today. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's such an important verse in not only the whole of Genesis, but the whole of Scripture. To understand how God's sovereign purpose is held in tension with man's responsibility. What Joseph is doing is he is exalting God's infinite wisdom. Infinite wisdom, right? Wisdom, I think, is one of the, the most challenging things to have in life. And it's something we need to pray for from the God of all grace who will give it to us. But if knowledge is thought and in our mind, wisdom is taking that thought and putting it into action. It's taking what we believe in our head to come out our fingertips and into our life. And God has an infinite amount of practical application to life. He came with a plan and a purpose, and His plan and purpose is always good. God's plan and purpose is always good, even in the midst of evil intentions of people. The brothers wanted Joseph dead. That was their intention. I want to kill you. I want to, I want, we want this brother of ours dead. That was their intention. And God's intention was to save thousands, if not millions. Not only of Egypt, but Canaan, and also, of course, the Hebrews. God's intention for him being sold into slavery, him being put into prison, him being finally elevated into a position of prosperity, but still kept as a slave in Egypt, was for the good of Joseph and his people. God's plan is always good, even in the midst of the evil intentions of man's heart. But let's not stop there because this verse does cover the whole of Genesis and the rest of human history. It doesn't just sum up what happened to Joseph and, and, and his brothers. 
but it, it exalts and shows us God's infinite wisdom throughout the rest of Scripture. So Romans 9 says this in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. What this verse is telling us is that the fall was intended for good. When Adam and Eve sinned and turned from God's purpose, it was intended for good. God knew about it and God planned for it. God knew about it and God planned for it. And it is so that the riches of His glory would be seen by the vessels of mercy. Who are the vessels of mercy? His church. His people. His people have been kept for Him from before the foundation of the world. And what God wants most of all is for them to know the extent of His glory. And that will take a, an eternity since He is infinite. An absolute eternity. I wish there was more words to say about eternity. But it just means forever and ever and ever and ever. In order that we would know the riches of His glory, we must know both the Father's power of electing and creating, the Son's atoning work, and the Spirit's sanctifying work. And in order for us to see that, sin must have to, sin had to have taken place. Therefore, Adam and Eve meant evil by the fall, trying to disobey God and govern their own life. But God meant it, that His vessels of mercy would taste and experience the riches of His glory for all eternity. The fall was part of God's purpose. Yet it was not attributed to Him and He takes no responsibility. He did it for good. Adam and Eve did it for evil. So this verse then gives us hope in the midst of great sin. This one verse gives us hope in the midst of great sin. This is a practical theology. We have wisdom here to put it into action. If you do evil, which you do, you do evil, just to make that clear, I do evil you can be sure that God will bring about good from it. Your evil is not excused, but the glory of God's grace will triumph over the evil itself. This is what happens in the crucifixion of Christ. The Jews were responsible for handing Jesus over to Rome and having Him crucified. But that was God's plan for good so that many would be saved. The Jews, as Peter says, you crucified Him. They are not excused for the sin that they have committed because they intended evil to come from it. They intended to be exalted as heroes and it was because of their jealousy of Jesus. So when we do evil, our sin is not excused. We must come and repent, but we can have a hope, a certain hope that God's grace will triumph over the evil for good. How might this work out? How might this work out in our life? It might be that you sin and cause fraction in your relationships in church so that you will then grow to have a deeper relationship. Not so that you will flake and run away and sin more, 
but that you will reconcile, experience grace and mercy and have depth of relationship just as Joseph and his brothers did. You may gain a deeper understanding of God's glorious grace because you have sinned. It's, it's just that simple. Because you have sinned, you will gain a deeper understanding of God's glorious grace. That is a precious gift. It might be through sin that you will be able to sympathize with others' weaknesses. And there's many more. We could go on forever to think practically about how, that, uh, uh, how it works out when we do evil, how good comes through God's grace. But on the flip side of it, is this evil is done to us. When evil is done to us, how does this practical theology apply to us then? Although the pain is real and it's not to be brushed over, the counsel is that good will come from the evil that is done to you. So rather than sitting back going, well, why does this happen to me? Why does it always happen to me like this? Why do I always get caught up in conflict? Why do I always get uh, hurt in these situations? You can ask that question or you could sit back and go, what good will God bring from this? What good will God bring from this? It can be applied to the simplest situations. A disagreement in your home, a disagreement in the church, getting cut off on the road, or it could apply to the great big questions. Losing a baby getting cancer, losing members in our church at a young age, not seeing our generations grow old. What good will God bring from this? Well, did Joseph know the good that God would bring from it back when he was sitting in Potiphar's house or in the prison? Maybe, probably not. Did he know when Pharaoh elevated him to the position of uh, second in charge in Egypt? Did he know then? Still probably not really. I, I think when he saw his brothers, maybe he realized this was an opportunity to save them if they were repentant, of course, after his testing of them. But in the midst of his uncertainty, he had faith in God's promises. He governed his thoughts and feelings and emotions and he took them captive in order to apply the promises of God. He was in Potiphar's house and he chose to run away from Potiphar's wife than engage in sin because he knew that God had a better plan. He's in prison and he chose to serve the baker and the cupbearer because he knew that God had a better plan. Joseph was a man who governed his thoughts, feelings and emotions. I don't believe he woke up every morning in prison happy about his situation. But he continued working hard, knowing that good could come from evil. Let's practically apply this verse to our life. And instead of asking... Why does this keep happening to me? We can ask, what good will God bring from this? From the little things to the major things. And we need to remember that God's good is not necessarily your good. 
God's good for you is not necessarily what you would have planned for your life. Joseph at 17, after he had the dreams of being elevated above his brothers and his father, probably had other plans than what God had. He didn't think he was going to get sold into slavery and put in prison. Jacob, when he lied on the ground and looked up to God and heard the promise of God and said, you will own this land and your descendants will be as many as the dust, probably wrote a different story than what God had for him, had intended. Same for Isaac. I don't think he really wanted to experience the idea of climbing a mountain with wood on his back and then his dad binding him and a knife coming down upon him. The good that God has for us is not necessarily the good that you would plan. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is a helpful reminder for us when it says, For my thoughts, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are as high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's also helpful to think of one of the most quoted Bible verses in, in the Scriptures, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then what happened to him? Exile. This is where this sits. This is the context of that verse. And we put it on cups and t-shirts and, and give it to every person that's suffering. Except the, the, the good that God may have for them may be exile. Away from the promised land into a pagan land where God will say, live, be fruitful, multiply, prosper. This is the good I have for you. So every time we see Jeremiah 29, 11, just remember that the good God had for Israel was exile. His thoughts are higher his ways are higher. And the good that he had for Israel was that it would be a nation devoted to him. He chose to discipline them. As one Old Testament scholar says, his, his plans concerning his people are always, always thoughts of good, of blessing. Even if he is obliged to use the rod, it is the rod not of wrath, but of the Father's discipline for he, for their temporal and eternal welfare there is not a single item of evil in his plan for his people neither in their motive nor in their conception nor in their revelation nor in their consummation that means there is not an evil there is not a single evil thing that can happen to a Christian that doesn't have a reason or purpose of good behind it. No criticism, no pain, no persecution, not even death. The Christian is victorious in death. The world would say that death's the end. The scriptures even say that death is the end. Except for the Christian who's in Christ. Though he die, yet he will live for the one who believes in Christ. So Genesis leaves us with God's people and sin, but the ongoing promise for good from evil. And in Genesis 
50, 22 to 26, we see this summary. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Mechir, the son of Manasseh, was counted as Joseph's. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was, in, he was put in a tomb in Egypt. Israel will become slaves after this for 400 years. And the promise that we've just heard is that that is God's intention for good. That they will see his strong right hand. That they will be delivered by God Almighty. Joseph says, I'm about to die. I am not your savior. I am not in the place of God. I am going to die. But God, who is your savior, will visit you and will bring you to the lands. He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, who will fulfill the promises of Genesis 3 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 26 and 28. He will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. And of course, Moses, when he exited Egypt with the million or so Israelites, he carried the bones of Joseph out of Egypt because God is faithful to his promises. So the promises of God are sure, they're certain, and they are good for you to govern your thoughts and feelings and emotions. Your good thoughts, your bad thoughts. Your good feelings, your bad feelings. Your good emotions and your bad emotions all need governing by the truth of God's Word. Any experience we have, we must govern by God's Word. And if Genesis could be summed up in just a few points to govern your thoughts, feelings and emotions by, God is in control. Even when sin affects every human institution and every human relationship, even though death reigns, God is in control. His people will be as many as the sea, uh, the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky, and they will take hold of the land. They will take hold of the land. When the Savior offspring comes, and he has, and he has, therefore his people are multiplying and becoming the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky, and they're taking hold of the land that the new Eden, God, his people in his land will be complete and sufficient and all satisfying forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, your grace abounds from the very first page of Genesis to the very end. From the common grace of creating the world to the special grace of choosing and saving your people. May you be exalted, glorified in our lives. 
Lord, as we know that sin corrupts, sin entangles, sin disarrays relationships, but Christ is victor, the offspring that has stood against Satan, who fulfilled the law, who defeated death, the offspring who will inherit the land, and all authority has been given to him, and all authorities will be put under his feet. His grace abounds to us today, fully and completely. That, Lord, if we repent of the thoughts we had this morning or the things we did yesterday, they are cast into the sea of your grace and cast as far from us as the east is from the west. May we counsel our thoughts and govern them with the truth of your word and the promises that we have. May we be as Joseph, but even better, may we be as Jesus, imitating him, our Savior, whose thoughts were always pure, whose emotions were never disarrayed or entangled, and his feelings were always so sure. May we apply the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the theology of the Word to our lives and practically live with wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.